Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Egal Bronner, editor of A Lasting Vision, Dundon's Mirror in the World of Asian Letters, published open access in 2023 in the South Asia Research Series by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Egal. Thank you. My pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, I'm glad we could make it happen. Um, let's dive in about what the the book is about. So it's an edited collection. It's tracing the influence and reception of a Sanskrit poetics treatise called the Kavya Darsha, uh, the Mirror of Literature by by Dundon. And we'll get into the the details of this pretty soon. But maybe you could start by giving listeners an idea of what your collection aims to do? what? Um, what's the main purpose of this collection of papers? Right. So, so the, this is a, this is a collected volume, as you said, and it, and, and collected volumes are usually very diverse, but this volume has a, has a clear protagonist. And this is the, this is the Kavya Darsha, the mirror of literature. And the, and the volume sets out to, to for the first time to to uh, follow the, this amazing career to to chart it to map it to explain it to ask questions about it how is it that uh, this work uh, was so uh, I mean first to establish the fact that this work was likely the most important work on literary theory in what we now call Asia and large tracts of Asia anyhow, uh, document that, establish, back that claim, and then to ask the how and why questions. That is, let's begin with the why. Why this work that is not particularly well known outside the Sanskrit circles and, uh, and even there and outside you know, the countries, uh, the literatures or the literary languages in which it was very successful, why this work was so welcomed by, by these other cultures and how did this process happen? So I think I think the if you ask me what the purpose of of uh, of the volume is I would say it's to establish a new field of Dundin studies and and to and and by doing and by virtue of doing that start thinking of of Asian literature maybe as a kind of a, a field of pre-modern and and early modern and even modern literature yeah. That's great, thanks. And I think I would definitely want to talk about the interdisciplinarity of the work. As you, as you know, I'm a philosopher, and you know, I'm I'm think Dundon's stuff is philosophically fantastic, and so I think there's a lot there that we can we can dive into. But let's let's back up first and ask you how you got interested in the Kavya Darsha. Kavya Darsha, I should say. That's that's a good question. So so I think. I, I was always interested in it uh, from from the day I started looking at it because even though at, at when I first read uh, sections of the of the mirror 
I didn't have the vocabulary to describe what I really liked about it, what really impressed me, things like the modularity, the openness of the work, but something struck me as very unusual and very interesting in the way Dundin discusses what literature is about, what the genres of literature are, what the languages of literature are, what the figures of speech are, what the poetic qualities, what he calls gunas are, what the poetic flaws, what he calls doshas are. The whole way of discussing it struck me as, as very special, very unusual, very imaginative. I didn't have the vocabulary for that. And I also thought that it was a very playful and interesting response to an earlier treatise on Sanskrit uh, literary theory by Bhama, the, the ornament or the ornaments of literature, Kavyalankara. And I started making arguments about that, and people told me, wait, 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 you have stop right there. How do you know that Dundin is responding to Bama and not the other way around, or there's some kind of more complicated uh, uh, chronology here? Maybe they're both responding to the same source. So, you know, I started looking into that. I knew that there was a whole debate about this, but I started looking into this, and I saw that... Almost everything that was written about Dundin was written apropos of this question of his relative chronology to Bama, and that I couldn't move forward without addressing that question first. So, so I first delved into this and published an article in 2012, which I think helps to resolve that controversy to you know reasonable effect. I can't produce a video showing Dundin poring over Obama's uh, treatise, but I think I make a strong case that 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 he is responding to Obama and that his readers knew that. That's that's definitely easy to show that that's what they thought. And and so I did that and once that was out I I I thought, okay, you know, I dealt with this kind of like almost dry philological question of who was first. Now let me say something that I'm really interested about in saying about, about the Kavya Darsha itself, the work itself. But then, you know, I couldn't do it on my own because, because uh, this is a work that the career of this work, as I said, is, 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 is very impressive and very unusual. And and you needed specialists in in Tamil and Kannada and Pali and Sinhala and Tibetan and Mongolian and uh, uh, Bangla and uh, and uh, and a host of other languages uh, and 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 uh, Burmese and uh, you know Japanese Chinese. So mm-hmm. at this point, I said, okay, that this is a group effort, and that and we started the group and and and. Eventually, after about 10 years, the the volume uh, came out. So let's back up a little bit before we talk about the trajectory of the work beyond the sort of Sanskrit context that it was in. You mentioned Pamaha, and of course, there are other Sanskrit uh, writing um, uh, literary theorists that are um, sort of engaged in literary criticism at this time. So maybe you could give a, a little sense of who is Dundon? When is he writing? 
um, what's what's literary theory in Sanskrit all about? Just uh, uh, enough to give listeners a sense of where Dundin is coming from. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So Dundin uh, lived around the year 700. So close of the 7th century, beginning of the 8th century. Don't know the exact dates, but that that is the kind of signpost. Uh, and he lived in the Tamil country. Uh, in the he was likely associated with the ruling uh, dynasty, the Pallava dynasty, that ruled out of Kanchipuram. Uh, and he he was associated with that region and with that uh, dynasty. And he we know from his other works he was a poet. He wrote uh, he wrote several important works in Sanskrit uh, prose and verse and a mixture and uh, and in these works there are some there's also some um, autobiographical accounts of himself uh, of his ancestry or how his family managed to get from uh, northern parts of the Deccan to uh, to Kanchipuram, oh, what happened, uh, his childhood went on, he lost his parents at a young age, all kinds of things. So actually we know more than we usually know about the personal life of, of Dundin. Of course, there's some people who say, well, maybe it's a different Dundin, but I don't think so. Um, and and by his time, so he, he lived in Kanchipuram, and I... I I think I can't prove this. That his mirror, that his Kavya Darsha, was a kind of a later work that he produced that later in life. There's some hints in the way he writes and in the topics he addresses that suggest to me that a youngster couldn't have written that. That's an intuition. I can't prove that. Um, so I think he he probably composed it after he composed some of his uh, better known works, uh, other known work, other well known works. That is the Dashakumara Charita primarily, uh, the Tale of uh, Ten Princes, uh, or what Ten Princes did in Isabella Nine's uh, nice translation, um, and the Avanti Sundari, which may or may not have been part of the same work or a separate work as the Dashakumara Charita, the beauty from Avanti. And uh, and also he wrote, he probably wrote a Ramayana Mahabharata work, a kind of a work that simultaneously narrates these two epics, which is lost, but we, we have a quote of the first verse attributed to him. So I think Later on, he composed, likely later on, later in life, he composed this treatise on what is literature, how to compose literature, what are the components of good literature, and so on. And when he writes this work, uh, there exists already a, a, liter a, a tradition of thinking about the literary in Sanskrit, not a very robust tradition by his time. Uh, and I think that he saw, and he rightly saw, as the founder of this tradition, Bamaha. And I think Bamaha thought of himself as a kind of a founding father. I think Bamaha took, compiled, and, and kind of created 
from various bits and things he saw in earlier works, a kind of a founding treatise on on literary theory, and then then was responding to this work, and he was he was he he created his mirror. He created his work as a kind of companion to Bama, a companion that refutes Bama on almost every in almost every verse, but that even when it doesn't, it keeps it has Bama in the back of its mind throughout. And and so it was created as a companion, and indeed the two works then traveled together. Um, uh, so so even and even when they didn't, since Bama is somehow included, uh, without being mentioned by name, by the way, in the mirror, then the two works uh, were, became somehow twins. And later on, in 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 certain works where they mention, you know, the founders of the different shastras of the different scientific systems, uh, Alankara Shastra, the the Sanskrit poetics. The theory of of ornaments is, is usually is 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 kind of an exception in that some people give it to founding fathers, Bama and Dundin, in this order. Uh, just just to mention one more thing, Dundin lives in Tamil Nadu, and there is another poetic system in Tamil Nadu, the system of Tamil poetics that's accompanying the literary production in Tamil. Dandin does not address that directly, and it's hard to know exactly what he knew about this. But that's so. The, it's, I don't want to create the impression that uh, there's only Sanskrit. There's or that Dandin is definitely aware of poetry in other languages, uh, in Tamil, in Prakrit, in Upper Brahmsha, and in a variety of languages so so and he's more open to these languages i argue and 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 we argue in this in this volume right and so that's one of the the themes uh, in the volume is the relationship of sanskrit to sort of the vernacular registers um not only in what is now india but beyond so maybe we can talk a little bit then uh about how dundon's mirror moved outside of india just sort of a, 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 as a sketch before we get into some of the details in the in the book how would a work like this have have traveled first of all from tamil nadu to the rest of the subcontinent and and beyond what would have that been like yeah so uh, we don't always know but what we do know is that there were several ways for for it to travel, right? So uh, first of all, let me mention that one of the unique aspects of of the mirror is that it was welcomed welcomed by uh, readers, adapters, translators from different religions that belonged in different religions. Uh, It's not by chance that the three first commentators of of the Kavya Darsha are one, uh, one of them, one is a Buddhist monk, one is a Brahmin, and one is likely a, a giant convert, so a, a giant. 
Uh, and so when we speak of the way the, that the mirror travel, I think it's, it's useful to, uh, first of all, acknowledge the, it, 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 it's widespread in the Buddhist world and along the kind of the roots of the, the, the trade routes and the, um, and the, and the roots of, of the Buddhist academic world. Okay. So, um, let me, let me give an example here. So Ratnashri Gyana, Ratnamati, or let's just call him Ratna is a Buddhist Sinhalese monk who comes to India in the middle of the 10th century. And he composes, uh, among other texts, a very important commentary uh, on the Kavyadarsha. And he goes to North India, and he leaves a, a, an inscription. So actually known th thanks to the uh, work first of Sheldon Pollock and more recently the very extensive work of uh, Dragomir Dimitrov, we know a great deal about his time and date and his travels and his works and and some some other works that may or may not have been written by him uh, later on in, in cinema. So this, this work then, you know, is studied in, very likely studied in Vikramashila, very likely studied in the, uh, in the Buddhist, uh, large Buddhist monasteries in Kanchipuram. And from there, it travels through these Buddhist routes to, on the one hand, to the Theravada world, that is to say, to Sri Lanka, naturally, because of this uh, Sinhala connection, uh, but also to uh, Burma, possibly from there to Thailand, and, and so on. But it also travels from these northern monastic uh, academic centers uh, to Tibet, when there is this big wave of ideas and, and texts that move from the Indian subcontinent to Tibet and from there to Mongolia. So that is one huge kind of <laughs> wave of transmission that sits on these kind of um, uh, Buddhist uh, uh, trails, but it's by no means the only one. Uh, and within the Indian subcontinent, uh, there there is uh, there is movements, you know, from 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 courts. So uh, you know, people in the in the courts of the of the of the Canada speaking region, they want to see the text that's there that everybody's speaking about in the Tamil speaking region, and they get that, and they and they adapted one. Really, the first written response to the Kavyadarsha is the Kaviraja Marga, the way of the, uh, the uh, of the poet king, right, and uh, and that's a. That's a Canada work that is a loose adaptation in, in se of the of the mirror. In some sections, it reads like a close adaptation. In some sections, it's very um, creative and, and and includes many other materials. And it's a and it's a work that is meant to uh, create 
works create, you know, literary creativity in Canada or comment on existing literary creativity or sanction the the literary production in Canada with some kind of a theory. So uh, these courts, you know, they mimic one another. The one one argument that we make in the book is that the is that we shouldn't imagine a kind of a uh, vertical uh, model necessarily from Sanskrit to the vernaculars, and there is a lot of uh, horizontal movements. Let's say between Sri Lanka and Karnataka, or between Java and Bali and uh, Karnataka and the Tamil-speaking regions, and so on. So there is a lot. Uh, for example, uh, for example, uh, if, um, I know it's a long please. answer, but no, I'll please stop do. soon. <laughs> but for example, think of think of another adaptation uh, off the uh, off the mirror or a loose adaptation of the mirror Subodhalankara that was created in Sri Lanka in Pali. Okay, it's a Pali language treatise on poetics. This Pali language treatise on poetics traveled to from Sri Lanka to Southeast Asia, to the Theravada regions of Southeast Asia, and it was very influential there. Sometimes the Subodha Lankara met uh, the Kavyadarsha, <laughs> of which it was a loose adaptation in places like Burma. And, and you see Pali commentators on texts, uh, 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 on texts in Pali, they kind of say, okay, so this is the opinion of Dundin, and this is the opinion of, of the Subodhalankara, and, and, and you see all kinds of strange textual effects happening, and you see that the transmission of the mirror arrived in places like Burma in more than one way, via Pali from Sri Lanka and via Sanskrit from the other side of the Bay of Bengal, from Bengal, and that these two sometimes meet. And that is very nicely shown in our uh, Bay of Bengal chapter of the book. So I want to get to the structure of the the book for sure, but before we do, let me just ask you to identify maybe one of the topics or debates that Dundon is is intervening in. You mentioned that he's, without naming him, sort of opposing Bahamaha in these ways. Uh, what are some of what's one of the issues maybe that's that's important that he's treating in this text? <sighs> I, I know there's so one. many, <laughs> <laughs> or two, yeah. or you know. Okay, so let let me choose. Let me choose two uh, or two or three with your permission. Sure. Uh, but stop me, stop me if, okay. again, if I get carried away. Okay. So one is definitely ornaments. What he called ornaments. What Bama calls ornaments, and these we can call them figures of speech, and. Whereas Bamaha, you know, Bamaha provides a, a kind of what I think he's doing is collecting from different sources that he had in front of him, about 35 ornaments. And he says, well, these are the ornaments. He gives his own examples for these ornaments. That's something new. And he takes credit for that, Bama does. And, but he, he's very restrictive about the subtypes, for example, is very few subtypes of ornaments. And Dundin says, or it seems like he's saying, wait a minute, 
why be so restrictive of subtypes of ornaments? If if we think about ornaments, again, he's not saying so much, but I think if you read him closely, you see his method. If you think of ornaments as kind of independent aesthetic modules that can presuppose and play with one another, then each ornament can create subtypes for other ornaments by ways of playing with them. So we can have, a, a, let's say, a simile as a kind of a basic ornament itself being based on what he calls swabavukti, factual statement. And then we can take that simile, let's say the face of somebody, a man or a woman, is like the moon. Then we can turn that into an identification, rupaka, the face moon, the face is the moon. Right? Then we can play with that identification uh, and say, no, actually, uh, the face is better than the moon. That's Vyatireka distinction. You know, the moon grows and wanes. The moon has this like strange dark blot on it, but the face is always round. The face is always radiant. The face is always beautiful. Then we can play further with that and say, uh, actually, and so on. So you see, you see the point. And this modularity is is a system that I think Dundin invents, and that later that later readers were very from Ratna on were very receptive to it. Not just Ratna, also the author of the Kaviraja Marga. Everybody, I think, to some extent, realized this. With respect to. Um, Let's choose another topic, and that's the topic of uh, poetic qualities or virtues, gunas, vis-a-vis -vis poetic flaws uh, or doshas. Um, Bamaha only has doshas, really. Doshas, I mean, almost. Doshas is really the an equal main topic in his book. He deals with doshas throughout. He's like, there's so many no's, don'ts in in the in the, in Bama's uh, Kavyalankara. He's very like, don't do this, don't do that. He's so normative and so you know, make sure to avoid this, make sure to avoid that. These are flaws. I mean, sometimes Bama says these flaws can be turned into virtues if you you know if you do if you know what you're doing but that's not systematic and not across the board and he's very very careful about these things and then Din says no 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 almost every guna nine out of uh, almost every dosha almost every flaw nine out of his ten flaws can be turned into can be turned into a, 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 vir a virtue and in fact it's that's the way he discusses these, how you can turn them into a virtue. And then he deals with the whole topic of what he calls the difficult path of poetry, Dushkaramarga. And he shows how these like very complicated uh, uh, uh Rhyming patterns, alliterative patterns, word word plays, and so on, can be used to very easy and beautiful and lovely effects. If you know, if the poet has a light touch and a and a light hand. So overall, overall, Dundin is open to 
innovation. He's open. He's he, he acknowledges the existence of innovation. He sees to into the past and into the future, and he and he can see that that new new people will come and coin new figures of speech. He says that, and so uh, and so he he kind of anticipates a broadening and 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 the kind of he almost anticipates i think the success of his own book in different cultures and different languages almost that's great thank you so let's talk about the your book uh, a little bit in terms of its structure and its collaboration as you know what you've told us so far shows the importance of collaboration if we're going to understand how Dundon um, is received in other contexts, and, and even in the sort of his original context, there's so much going on there, right? That it seems like you need a lot of experts with different sorts of um, sorts of uh, expertise. Can you talk a little bit about what brought this work about? Is you said it's about a ten year process. Um, who are the kinds of people that you're collaborating with, and Say a little bit about the structure of the book because it's a little different. It's not just a, a bunch of essays that have been kind of plunked t- together, right? So exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. So you you say it's your book, but it's your in the plural. Yes, that's right. It, yes, 20, English is limited. I didn't can't yeah, do that. <laughs> twenty four, twenty four of us, and as you said, if if we want to. If we want to plot and explain and understand and study the Asia-wide or almost Asia-wide phenomenon of the Kavya Darsha, we have to bring in people with expertise in these different languages and different literary cultures and different histories and, and so on. And no one person can, can do that alone or not two people, right? You need a group. Um, so that was the that was the first impulse, and and we and together uh, with my original two collaborators, Jennifer Clare, who was a Tamilist, and Charlie Halsey, who was a Sinhala scholar, we convened a, a one-day pre-conference in Wisconsin. What uh, um, uh, I don't know, twelve years ago, I'm not sure. Um, it's in the preface, and and we we just gave talks about the different angles, and then we then we created a group that sat together and read together for six months, and that was crucial. Uh, and this was done uh, in Jerusalem in the Israel Institute of Advanced Studies, and we just sat together. Uh, uh, with the Sanskrit materials and the Tamil materials and the Kannada materials and the Tibetan materials and the Sinhala and Pali materials, and we just, you know, showed each other what's, you know, how do these translate to one another? What's there in Sinhala that is not there in Sanskrit? What's there in Kannada that is not there in Sinhala? How do these? works converse with one another either through the sanskrit or through or bypassing the sanskrit or both and we just made you know we would read about an alankara x a figure of speech or or a certain guna or a certain flaw or a certain topic and we would just look at these texts and read them together and the this immense literature to read. We didn't read everything, obviously, but we started thinking together as a group. And that was, to me, that reading together is is 
is not only key for such a project, but it's also why I'm in this business. That's the most fun thing. Then we we also had at the end of this uh, residence at the IIAS, we had an international conference and we brought, a, you know, almost everybody uh, who's worked or interested in working on Dundin. And many of these people, they presented their angle to us. We showed them what we did. And many of these people came became contributors. And then what we did, which I think is really unusual, so far, you know, it sounds like a conference that leads to, I mean, not a conference, but an advanced residence that leads to a shared volume. But what we did that's unusual is that almost all the chapters in this volume are co-authored or even uh, sometimes co-edited. So each each chapter has an editor or a, a, a pair of editors, and they're all but the last chapter they're all co-authored, and some people even authored, you know, sections in different chapters. And we all read everybody's drafts, and we met to discuss them. At least all the editors. So it was a, it was an unusual way of putting this together. And I think that that by doing so, we may have mitigated against some of the. Uh, structural problems of the volume, and there are structural problems. You asked me about the structure. The structure is, by and large, regional or linguistic. So there's an introduction. There's a chapter about the Kavya Darsha that I mostly wrote, and there's one section I co-authored with Gary Tubb. But then there are chapters about the different literary cultures that received the mirror. So first, the first main uh, areas of adaptation, Karnataka and Kannada, uh, uh, Sri Lanka and Sinhala and Pali, uh, Tamil, Nadu and the Tamil language, and Tibet and Mongolia, which is like maybe the most amazing case of of adoption of, of Dundin. Then there is a chapter on uh, the place of Dundin in Sanskrit literary theory itself. It's an attempt to tell the story, the history of Sanskrit literary theory through the perspective of the Kavya Darsha of Dundin's Mirror, rather than uh, than the usual way of telling that story. And then there are story. Then there are chapters uh, about uh, Dundin in the Bay of Bengal, Dundin in uh, Java and Bali. Uh, and Dundin in uh, in East Asia, uh, the, the the kind of the diminishing effect maybe, <laughs> but still somewhat uh, felt presence of the mirror in in China. Did I forget a chapter? I think that's. I think you've gotten gotten everything. That's impressive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean the. The collaborative, multilingual, multidisciplinary aspect of the work, as you say, is is one of the things that's really uh, unusual about this this kind of edited volume. Uh, if I can follow up on the the collaboration aspect of it, I'm curious about thinking about the different readers of this book. Uh, what are some of the disciplines that you think? Because uh, you say you're 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 starting a new Dundon studies sort of area, right? Um, 
who are the sorts of readers that might come to this and find something interesting from different disciplines, right? You know, I'm thinking certainly different regional area studies, literature, but also religious studies, philosophy, linguistics. Maybe you can talk about some of these different aspects that are that are touched on in the in the book. That's a great question. Uh, uh, look, the book begins with a comparison that that Sheldon Pollock has first made and that we try to extend between Dundin and Aristotle. And I think uh, that the first group of readers that we imagine are, are people who are interested in, in literary theory and in traveling theories. How, 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 is it, how is it possible, really, that a literary theory can travel from one literary culture and one language to another? It's not, it's not an easy thing. And, and I think the example of, of Aristotle's poetics shows the difficulties. So it's illustrative in a way as a kind of a negative example to about what it took in the case of Sanskrit literary culture and Dundin's mirror as a kind of a uniquely successful representative of that literary culture. What does it take for a theory to travel? So I think people are interested in in literature, literary theory, and kind of traveling ideas, theories, genres. They would be in, maybe interested in this volume. I, I hope they would be. Then people are interested in grammar and in you know ideas about language because because grammar in many ways is the kind of paradigm for Sanskrit literary theory and for these other literary theories. So um, so I think people are interested in grammar writ large and in the intellectual history of particular grammars might be interested in in this work or or I hope would be and and people are interested in philosophical questions as you said uh, too but and 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 then there is this intersection with religion um, which is really is really fascinating the way I mean this is not just Dundin obviously um, but the way Kavya the way Sanskrit lettres, you know, Sanskrit literature, the way it managed to sell itself or the way it managed to produce itself as almost non-denominational or at least open to the different dominations. And this idiom in which religious scholars and writers in different religions, Buddhism, Jainism, Brahminism, uh, Charvakas, like uh, Udbata likely was, and skeptics. Or, you know, that that is fascinating. That the uh, that the Shaivas and Advaita Vedantins and the Dalai, the fifth Dalai Lama, all shared this kind of mirror idiom to some extent. It, is fascinating to me, and and I I also very much hope you know that people are interested in. Javanese literature, or uh, Burmese uh, literature, or you know, or in the literary history of Sinhala or Kannada or Karnataka, or these very various different um, 
literary cultures and regions would, you know, at the very least, you know, download that chapter from the volume and and the relevant chapter. And and finally, I, I also hope that Sanskritists will be as as the last but not least audience for this work. Um, there's a lot about Sanskrit there too. Great. Let me go back to the question about religion, because you mentioned the chapter on Tibet, which you say is is a really fascinating uh, topic, and we don't have time to de- delve into it um, in its entirety. But thinking about the listeners of this podcast who might be just a range range of people, they might be wondering, well, why would it be unusual or surprising that a work on literary theory is uh, acceptable to different religious religious groups, which is literature after all? Um, and, and so maybe you can unpack a little bit about What's going on there? Why is there uh, the, uh, something surprising about Buddhists taking Dundon's text? Why and, and why would they be commenting on it in in the first place? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to to say that to say something about that. So, to begin with, there is a kind of ambivalence in the world of, you know, in the receiving world or in the receiving end of Tibet about works that are not Buddha Vachana, that are not the words of the Buddha, that are not religious treatises, that are not conducive to uh, self or communal enlightenment and better and betterment, that they're not religious works. And and Dandin is an openly openly a Shaiva, you know, he's not hiding his his religious identity. So it usually works on such, let's call them secular topics, such as medicine or literature uh, or literary theory, are less likely to be translated into a language like Tibetan. And when translated, there is always some uh, ambivalence. If and and Janet Gatso has written about the case of medicine as shown, you know, in her book on that, you know, then there's always kind of like an attempt to rationalize this. Well, maybe if it's so useful, then it is after all Buddha Vachana, and and, and there are other kinds of explanations. I I don't want to speak to that because it's it's I'm, I'm I'm getting away from my areas of expertise. But you can see already that these kinds of works, uh. uh are met with some suspicion, okay? Um, both because of their uh, uh, scope, both because of their topic, and because of the identity of their composers. Uh, and the same is true uh, in in the entirety of the Theravada uh, world. Uh, so the fact that Dandin was nonetheless not only translated, but translated and retranslated. The fact that his his work was commented on, upon in Tibetan, not just comment, like one of the subtitles in the in the in the volume is called a mountain of commentaries. Okay, there are so many commentaries on Tibetan. In fact, that uh, it uh, not only was commented upon, but it became like the it became a, an important key part of of the intellectual education of both uh, monks and lay people alike. People studied some kind of a translation with a commentary, usually on 
Dundin's Mirror in Tibetan. And then they produced what is called exercise notebook or exercise book in which they composed in Tibetan their own illustrations for every topic in Dundin's book. All the figures of speech, all the subtypes of the figures of speech, all the qualities and so on all the gunas and so on. So there is a huge library, a vast library. This Now, now it's, a, it's an open question. Um, uh, Pema Bhum and Janet Gyatso, who, who edited and wrote most of the chapter on Tibet and Mongolia, say that it's likely that the Dandin did not enter the monastic uh, curriculum, okay? But, in, but it was studied likely outside of the monastery. But, uh, for example, in Burma, uh, parts of uh, of Dandin's Kavya Darsha or uh, translations of the Pali or or, or the Pali Subodhalankara or uh, along with along with related works uh, such as uh, Dharmadasa's Vidagda Mukamandana were actually part of of the of the curriculum for more advanced monks and 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 part of the exams for more senior intellectual positions within the monastic system so despite this initial resistance that never disappeared there was it was always met with some kind of suspicion and resistance it had a tremendous impact we cannot imagine literary and intellectual writing we cannot imagine writing in pre-modern tibet without the manual <laughs> or the many tibetan versions of the manual of the of dundin's mirror and that and 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 one of the amazing thing is that many of the cha- some of the chapters in the, in the volume end in modernity in anecdotes from modernity in which Either the mirror or some kind of like uh, reincarnation of the mirror is still relevant in these in these literary cultures. So that that that's really very impressive, I would say. Yeah. Not something not something that I realized was the case when I when I went into Dundin studies. Yeah. So it's. I mean, it seems like the the. Sort of the terrain is wide open here in terms of uncovering a lot of a lot of fascinating things, as you say. So that leads me to ask a little uh, speculative question, maybe. Um, with this book, uh, this this collaboration complete, and you, your goal being to try and open up a sort of new field of studies, where would you like Dundon studies to go next? Where where uh, you here in the plural, <laughs> but but I have you here to speak to. What do people think maybe would be the next places to explore to understand Dundon and his in- influence? Uh, lots. There's lots to do. I mean, first of all, I think it it should go out of our hands, and and other people should should take over. I think we 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 said most of what we had to say, and I think. Uh, People should read the book, criticize the book, and and take and take it their own way. I think, I think there's so much more to be done in each and every area, uh, in each and every region that's 
so-called covered, quote-unquote, by a chapter in the book. There's so much more to be done. It's really, it's really just a, just a, just a kind of a, an invitation. The volume is an invitation for people to to work on on um, on on Dundin in all these regions and in regions that we do not, unfortunately, manage to cover in the volume. It's not a complete survey. So, what about what about uh, early Hindi poetry in in Braj and Ritikal? What about Telugu and and Malayalam? Why, if that's the case, is Dundin less prominent there uh, than he than he is in 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 other cases what about dundin's uh, literature you know what about his literary works that we don't discuss in the volume what about the dasakumara charita the avanti sundari um, that are the topic of of a recent um, dissertation by janet um from uh, uh, berkeley what, how do they relate to to the Dundin phenomenon, or don't they relate to it? Um, so much more can be said about every every one of these topics and their combination. And I, I think, uh, you know, I'll continue to publish on you know small aspects of 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 Dundin's Kavyadarsha. But really, I think I think this is now the time for other people to to take it from here and and improve what we did. There's fast room for improvement. Well, I've taken up a lot of your your time already, and I appreciate you taking us through the the book. Um, as you as you as you say, it is open access, and so it is the sort of thing anybody can just go online and download the whole thing, uh, or chapter by chapter, as as you say. Um, quick question for folks: if they're interested in reading Dundon himself, uh, and they are not a Sanskritist, are they able to do that? What should they do? No, unfortunately, there is no, I mean, there is a kind of a bad English translation, if I may say so, uh, but it's not, it, they won't get a sense of the work. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm working on a, on a reader now of uh, my, my, I very much hope to finish it within this with the calendar year, calendaric year within 2023 and submitted for publication on a reader on Alankara. And that would be a, a historical reader in the in the series that uh, uh, Sheldon Pollock's uh, a Rasa reader came out and and other other important books by by Jonas Bronkhorst and, and Oliver. <laughs> uh, so this would be a historical reader on ornaments, and there will be six chapters of mainly translations with headnotes. And the second chapter is a complete translation of the second and main chapter of Dundin's Mirror, the chapter on poetic figures, on poetic ornaments. But it is not, so that will come out hopefully sometime in 2024, maybe a bit later. But that is not a complete translation of Dundin's Mirror, only of the second out of its three chapters. There is a, there is a uh, well, I'm blanking on this, 
but there is a there is a dissertation. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't be blanking on, on your podcast. But I'll, I'll get okay. I'll back, back to you in a second. Sure, we'll put, but put really, notes. there's no complete translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry. Are, do you know of any uh, plans? Epling, to... epling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know of a plan to do that. I know that there is a plan that there is, there are kind of several translations already out of the Kavirata Marga, and there's one that is being done by my colleagues and contributors to the volume, uh, uh, Sarah Pierce-Taylor and Andrew Wallet. They will do mm-hmm. another new translation of the Kavirata Marga. Um, there is a translation of the Subodha Lankara, but there's no accessible, good, complete translation of the of the mirror, unfortunately. Mm, that's a shame. Maybe maybe sometime in the in the future, as a as a result of more collaborative work, something will will appear. Maybe, but you also have to keep in mind that the third chapter, with all the difficult poetry, that that all the examples there in the difficult poetry are barely translatable, really mm-hmm. translatable. Yeah, that's true, and that's something we didn't we didn't talk about is the challenge of in English or other languages talking about these this poetry, uh, which of course has a lot of features that are really only um, reproducible in Sanskrit. Uh, so that's a challenge. Yeah, it, it, that is the main challenge of of my next book project of this reader because I I. I made it a, a rule for myself that I will not include a translation in the reader that does not read as poetry in English. Hopefully good poetry, but that would be for the readers to judge. And at the same time, it must also be illustrative of the definitions that I also translate. So that's a very big challenge, and that's why it's taken me so long to complete, still working on completing this reader. but. It's almost there. Yeah. Well, that, that's an excellent goal. I mean, if you want people to actually engage with the the ideas, you, they need to understand what the points are are being made. It reminds me of the the point about the Tibetans that you mentioned earlier. That part of the the process is coming up with your own examples and being able to understand and exemplify what's happening. Uh, so, my last question you've already sort of answered, which is what you're working on now, and that sounds like this is the Alankara reader. Is there anything else that you're you're working on or is this occupying your main, main focus? I'm uh, I'm always working on too many things. Uh, let's let's uh let's keep the let's keep the the a reader on Alankara and and that's the kind of my main problem. We'll leave that. We'll leave the we'll leave things there, and then maybe I'll be able to talk to you about that once it's out uh, in in uh, hopefully 2024. Well, Egal, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Lovely talking with you, and um, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor. <laughs>